TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is the 10th anniversary of Design Matters, and to mark the anniversary, we're replaying some favorite shows from the archive. This one, an interview with Marianne Duchars, was recorded in November of 2012. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This program, Debbie Millman talks with Marianne Duchars about the expressiveness of hand lettering, about how drawing is an intense form of looking, and about the limited value of technology in teaching art to children. I love the iPad, and I love my kids playing on the iPad, but I love them playing with paint and drawing materials so much more because it's absolutely their world and no one else's world on that piece of paper. Here's Debbie Millman. Marianne Duchars has a lot of fun can tell by her illustrations. They're sure-handed scrawls and exuberant letters with clear evidence of the human hand, of Marion's hand to be exact. Her style is instantly recognizable and much loved. You can see it on the covers of American GQ, on the editorial pages of The Guardian, and in the cookbooks of Jamie Oliver. You can also see it in Marion's own books. They're called Let's Make Some Great Art and Let's Make Some Great Fingerprint Art. The books argue that anyone can learn to draw or at least enjoy the process. Marion Duchars, welcome to Design Matters. Thank you. Marion, the first question that I want to ask you is one that I haven't asked any of my guests in a very long time. But this is a question that seems absolutely apropos for you. What is your first memory of being creative? The first memory I have of doing something very creative was with my brother, and we were probably age seven, seven and nine. And we thought if we bought some cheap sweets, we could repackage them and sell them to people in, in our street and our family and make some money to buy some toys. And so we went out and bought lots of cheap, you know, polar mints and wine gums, and we wrapped them up in little pieces of paper and labelled them, and we made a shop in our bedroom. And then we sold the sweets for like you know ten times the profit. Wow! And um, 
Ironically, my brother is, is, you know, ended up as an economist and I ended up in the arts. I'm not, not too surprising, but that was such... I look back at it now and think we, we kind of must have known what we were doing. And it's so interesting to see how that might have forecasted where you've ended up. I mean, that's incredible. <laughs> so did you... Have you always wanted to be a designer and an illustrator? No, no, I don't think so. I wasn't sure. I think my parents always said, do what you love and be creative. You know, do, you should try and find something to do that you really love. But in the school, I think there was a, a kind of push towards doing something academic or to try and get a job. And so they, they wouldn't be saying, go to art school. But you went to art school. I did go to art school just because I think in the end, you, you know, I must have trusted. That was what I was best at. So you studied illustration and printmaking at Duncan of Jordanstone and the Royal College of Art in London. And you graduated with an MA in 1989 with distinction. And immediately upon graduation, as far as I could tell, you started an art and design studio in North London with some of your classmates. So right out of school, you went and started your own firm? It wasn't really a company as such. It's more a place where we were all individuals, but we shared facilities and we shared you know, overheads. And so it was more like creating a community rather than a company. And we, I think we just wanted to take an extension from college. We weren't quite ready to leave. But also, you know, I just think we're social creatures and we, there, there, there was that kind of idea that illustrators just go straight from college to their bedroom and start working. <laughs> and I always had the fear of that. It's just that's not for me. So it was less of a financial or company idea, more of a, a solidarity idea. And did you start out at that time fairly certain that you wanted to be an independent illustrator on your own? Yeah, I think that that's what my training had led me to believe I should be doing. Whether that was for obviously there's a high fallout on that, but that's what I wanted to do. So. And so, how did you go about getting business back in the beginning? We used to call it panding the boards. You just trail your big A1 portfolio around the streets and try and get as many appointments as you could and see as many people as you could. It was very physical. You know, in a sense, now you might send out an emailer or send something out, we actually had to go and see people, physically see people. And you were kind of promoting yourself and by being in person and showing your work to people. It's very different, very different world, actually. You have become most known for your distinct style of using hand lettering, which I understand you first used in a D&AD annual report in 2002. And to mark the 40th birthday uh, the annual review was called What's the Point? It was art-directed by Vince Frost, and you hand-wrote all 5,496 words of the text in pencil. Why? <laughs> that seems like a good idea at the time. <laughs> <laughs> what made you decide to do that? I, don't know, I think actually it was originally Vince's idea. We, we kind of... It came about definitely as a collaboration, but one idea was to originally was to draw and write the whole thing in pencil so you know there would be no photography it would all just be in pencil and I, th I think the concept was fantastic but I think in the end it, it proved very successful and supposedly people wrote in saying they'd read an annual report for the first time in their life so, so. I would I would say that that's very accurate especially um, from my point of view because I was just enthralled by everything I read every single bit of it I looked at the page numbers I mean it was just absolutely <laughs> stunning 
Now, what I really found interesting in terms of looking at the body of your work, you graduated school in 1989, and in 2002, you created this look that became instantly part of your equity as an illustrator and as a designer. What was your work like between 1989 and 2002 when the annual came out? I think it was quite different. I think I'm more of an image maker. And I think the lettering things come about purely because it's the zeitgeist and that lettering looks right for this time. But I still think of myself as an image maker. How would you define image maker? Well, I'm able to translate most text into some kind of imagery and I normally respond to the text and it's always been a surprise for me what I produce and I like to keep developing my picture making so that I don't get bored I suppose but I never really I'm not someone who you know what you're going to get with but when you when you commission so people that used to commission me there was always an element of surprise I, I think my work changed a lot over probably every five years it would look quite different because I just constantly evolve, evolve it. How do you feel it's changed in the last five years? Well, it's changed again, very much so, because of the subject matter. So I've moved into what was... I was thinking of moving into an area for children. Uh, it, as it turned out, it's not just for children, but it's, it's an area that's not trying to sell you something, in a sense. It's selling an idea, or selling, you know, selling the idea that, you know, you can draw. So... I think that's changed the whole the whole look again. And maybe it's more of my personality starting to come out in the work because it's coming from me rather than someone else's idea. What is it about the handwritten word that fascinates you so? I think handwriting hand lettering is fascinating because it offers you an insight into personality. I think when you look at the lettering that's been drawn you're trying to imagine who drew it or who wrote it. And that's quite different to a font. Font designers might think who designed that font, but I don't think the public do, but I think if you see hand lettering, you believe it's a person. I think it's, it, it has emotional, an emotive quality, and it has a personal quality. I feel in looking at your work, however inaccurate this might be, that I, I know you a little bit more because of the style of your writing and the style of your typography. It's very different than just regular um, computer-generated typography in a really profound way. I suppose it depends what I'm writing as well. I mean, I think you can... I even found the annual fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) My work's quite aesthetically quite pleasing. Yes. It's not violent or provoking. It's quite happy. Do you also work on a computer at all? Yeah, I work... I I assemble on a computer. So everything's made off the computer, all the bits, I would call them, and they're, they're put together. I I use it like a one big silk screen machine, I suppose, without the mess. I was going but, you know, I have a love-hate relationship with the computer. I need it, but I, I have two desks at work, and one I call one's my happy desk, which is my the kind of desk you were describing with all the art materials on it. And the other one is my computer desk, and I, I just now feel much happier when I'm on my, what I call my play desk. It's, it's, I can lose time there in a very productive way, whereas I can waste a lot of time on the other <laughs> Well said. Um, I want to talk about your books, but before I do, I also want to talk about some of your other projects. Um, so you you wrote around George Clooney for the cover of Esquire, and I believe that you also created clothes with writing on them for Tilda Swinton. So can you talk a little bit about what it's like to create a design with type around a personality? 
How much of you goes into that? How much of them is affected by what you do? Well, I suppose you could look and think, oh, my, what, the lettering looks the same <laughs> on everything. But actually, I think there is... Oh, it doesn't look no, the same oh, at good. all. No. no, I think I do. I think, I mean, I've been doing illustration for a long time. And I think um, the one thing I know that I'm quite good at is generally fulfilling the brief in a sense of understanding the text, reading the text very well and interpreting it. It is a kind of quite an instinctive thing, though, rather than very well thought through. I mean, I have a few different ways of using my lettering and I can't tend to know which... So one's a bit more aggressive than the other, say, or, and you just tend to know which suits, suits which subject. Without getting too meta, and I can almost <laughs> hear my listeners rolling their eyes as I ask this question, but I have to. Do you think about the personality of the letters as you're drawing them? There are certain letters that you draw, certain A's, certain E's, that are plaintive, mm. that look happy or sad or heartbroken. And I find that to be incredibly, just incredible. How, how can you create an A to look wistful? <laughs> and yet Marion Ducharz does that. They have a personality. They have an emotion to them. Is that something that you're conscious of? It's funny when you say that because I think I can see that when I draw. It's like a kind of flow takes on its own little life, I think where you will just make, exactly, you'll just change the letter form in an instinctive way. It's it's almost like a language of letters. So Mm. you can have 35 different E's, and one is a happy E, and one is a sad E, and one is a confused E, and one is plaintive, and one is wistful, and one is humble. I mean, it's, it's an extraordinary ability to have that type of detail embedded in a Roman letter. It's like singing a little song, isn't it? Mm Mm-hmm. It's like drawing and singing, and I, I think it's I think it's very very instinctive and very hard to sit here and dissect. But it's it's nice that you can see personality through it through in, in there. So let's talk about your books. Let's talk about let's make some great art. Let's make some great fingerprint art, and let's make some great placemat art, which are all charming and beautiful and absolutely joyful. Um, how and why did you create this series of books? No, it's I, I mean I I wanted to do a kid's book or I wanted to write a kid's book for quite a long time and um, at the time I'd, I'd, I had some I had some I have two little boys with my husband Angus Highland and I think I was complaining to him about there was there were very few places to buy art materials for kids um, where we lived and he he's a consultant to a huge art shop called Cass Art in London and there were I think through him and, and the the owner of the art shop, Mark Cass, they just they thought they could maybe open up an art store for kids. And Angus said to me, why don't you, can you do like a little throwaway gift book for, for the sh- launch of this um, kids' art shop? And so I said, oh, I'm too busy. I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to do my book, my real book. <laughs> but I said, oh, OK, I'll do it. So that I started this little project, which was, you know, I suppose it was conceived as an activity-type book. But as an art, but I thought, oh, it's really boring to do an activity book. But if I do an art activity book, it could be quite interesting. And so we, between us, we produced this little art book, which was to encourage children to to draw, basically. And that was given away in this to promote this new art shop. About ten thousand copies were printed, so it was quite successful. And it it was a really inviting little book, and it had some art, a little bit of art reference in there, and. I suppose eventually that book ended up on a publisher's desk. Um, Lawrence King. Lawrence King. 
And he, he's the one that, to be fair, saw potential in developing that little book as a big book and persuaded me, I suppose, to, to start it. <laughs> well, you have written them. I have written, yeah, so this just took me off in a slightly different direction, actually. But it's been a very, very good direction to have taken. Well, I want to talk about all three books, but one of the quotes that really struck me in some of the literature I was reading about your books was a quote that, that actually you said, and I, I want to share that with you. You said, my children's drawings surprise me all the time. They break the rules, they inspire, they make me laugh, they shock. I don't want that to change for as long as possible. That line stopped me in my tracks because I did realize that so much of that changes for people after they stop being children. Why is it inevitable that this changes in people? Well, it's probably, I hate to say it, just down to our education, the way we've decided to teach art. But it's very true. There's an age where children draw without inhibition. We can all recognise that kind of drawing because we've all done it. And then around the age of 10 or 11, and it's mainly in a Western culture, we try to attain a kind of realism um, within our drawing. And it's whilst we're trying to attain that realism that things can go horribly wrong. (laughs) So for the ones who attain a realism that they're happy with, for example, so if they manage to achieve some kind of proportion within the drawing or they try to draw something and it resembles it, then they're quite happy they continue and they keep up the drawing. They have enough impetus to keep drawing. But for the majority of people, it's too much and they basically decide from that point that they're actually not very good at drawing and their drawings are bad and they stop drawing. And not only do they stop drawing, but they generally don't ever draw again and can even develop a fear of drawing which is quite quite common. And, and I would say, how can we develop a fear of something that's so amazing and that gave us so much personal expression as children and suddenly we decide we can't, we're no good at it, therefore we stop. I think it's quite a strange thing and, and probably historically it's quite a new thing. You know, I'm, I'm sure people in the past didn't always, you know, they didn't have those measures to say this is what good art is and this is what bad art is. So if you're not good enough, just don't become an artist. But do you think that it's part of the intrinsic human way we communicate to draw? You talk in one of your books about how um, prehistoric man drew his own hand on a cave with pigments that they were able to get from nature. Do you feel like that need to communicate in this way is somehow hardwired into us and then sort of beaten out of us because we don't seem to have any natural talent or ability? Well, well, it's because someone's telling us we don't have the natural talent. If we just kept drawing in that expressive way and we're allowed to draw like that, if that was celebrated somehow, maybe a lot more people wouldn't give it up. And, of course, I think you can be taught to learn drawing skills and they can just make you feel more confident, but that's not the only part of drawing. Drawing is all about looking. And if you learn to draw that drawing is about looking, you could learn to experience drawing in a different way so that it's not just about learning a skill to make something look right or or perfect. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by drawing is about looking? There's two people I love that resonates when I've heard them talking about drawing. One is David Hockney. And he talks about that when you you draw something, you just see it differently. And And in the most 
basic terms, I think that's absolutely true. When you when you draw something, it's an enhanced way of looking, a much more enhanced way of looking, and you don't really see something until you've drawn it in a lot of ways. You see it more intensely or more accurately? I think I think all those things. It, it's much more of a, a physical experience of of whatever you're drawing in front of you. I think one of the best examples I have is when, when I've done... I don't do that much reportage work, but I did some travelling around Cuba and Mexico where I felt very self-conscious with the camera and I was very inspired by what I saw there. So I wanted to grab it all with my camera, but I felt it, it was wrong. Why? It just made me feel like a tourist for a start. I mean, it kind of felt like I was just stealing great images and... It was a little bit disrespectful, whereas the minute, the minute I started drawing in the street, I had a, a very different experience. I, I mean, many, many people would come up to you for a start and, and talk to you, but but the relationship I had with the space around me changed. I mean, I'll never forget those places I've drawn. It just felt like there was something reciprocal going on rather than just taking. So I was looking at something very, very acutely, but also strangely felt like I was giving something back in some way by making people who would walk past the same scene every day look at that scene differently. So it's back to the drawing is looking, and even if someone else's drawing can make you look at something differently. You include a number of really marvelous quotes in your books, and one of my favorites was a quote from Paul Clay who said that drawing was like taking a line for a walk. It's a very famous one. Um, your books are packed with um, incredibly stimulating ideas to spark the imagination. You can complete Mona Lisa's smile. You can design your own Jackson Pollock-inspired work with a marble and a tray and some paint and some paper. There are really lovely step-by-step instructions to teach somebody how to draw a bird and give it an expression. And there's also a foolproof method for drawing a bicycle, which I tried, and it really works. What gave you the notion to create the book with these types of collaborative exercises and with ways in which you could teach people how to draw and educate them about art at the same time? Well, I think with any book with this kind of subject, I think the only place I could start was with what I knew by myself, you know, my, myself. And I just had to go back and think how I learned. How did I learn this stuff? And for those of us who don't who don't give up the drawing, you know, age ten, you, you learn quite a lot along the way. And it was some of it's very, very simple. And some of it almost not you'd think not worth writing down. But I basically just went back and step by step I just tried to think of a subject and think, well how did I learn how to do that? Or how did I how do I know about perspective or how do I know about this or that? And and at the same time, I looked at some drawing books of how to draw books and they're so difficult. I think, don't know if anyone would actually learn very much from them because they're very off-putting, they're so dense. And so what, one of the most important things I wanted to do with these exercises was make them accessible and make them accessible not only to children but to adults who might be teaching the children but also at the same time to adults who might want to rediscover that that childlike you know, enjoyable experience of art. So all the time I just wanted to make it super, super simple. And that was actually the hardest thing about the book, was taking those ideas and then how do you explain that and how do you get someone to do it? Without boring... Without, what I would do with those other art books is switch off. I would lose track. I'd try and follow it and then I'd go, oh, my God, I've, I don't know how to do this. So I was trying to make it 
slightly idiot proof, but it's and fun. Well, they're also fun to read. Even if you don't do the exercises, (laughs) I loved going through the books and learning wonderful trivia about Pablo Picasso and about Jackson Pollock and about Louise Bourgeois. I mean, it's a really wonderful book to read as just the narrative itself is is quite wonderful. Well, just in that, I mean, again, I did want to bring some art history in there and there's not a huge amount in there, but they're like little triggers. And I thought if anyone's interested, they'll read further. But if you if you put too much information in, they'll switch off too because the main audience was children. And I think, how can I get the children interested in that subject? You know, you, you just need a certain amount of information with an image, with, with a, an exercise to go with the artist. And it was just finding that balance of not switching children off, actually. Um, last night I was uh, continuing my research in preparation for today's interview, and a friend of mine stopped by the studio and saw your books, and she has a five-year-old son, so she was enthralled and immediately ordered them all on Amazon. Um, and But she wanted me to ask you a question, and, and I'm not entirely sure if it's really the appropriate question to ask on the air, but she wanted to know if you were a proponent of the revolution in education that's going on now. She described that there's a real change in the way that we're teaching young students, young minds. She thought that this was evidence of this revolution going on in the way that we're teaching young people in the popularity and beauty and and resonance of your books. I haven't heard of this revolution, but it's the first time. But I think if I think there's anything that's happening right now is... It's just a a reaction to the well I call it that we're getting sucked into a virtual world, and I think the thing about these books and, and not just my books, but I think anything that we were talk- I was talking about before using your hands or making you do something physical, I think people are responding to it in a very positive way, and partly when I've been doing workshops with um kids, which I talked about a fear of drawing, but I think there's a fear of losing the mess that we make with art and kids getting their hands messy and dirty. And, and and actually, even places where I've tried to run workshops, there's so many restrictions. It's like, can I make a mess, please? You know, can I get paint out? Can I get paper? Can I, can I get glue sticks? And sometimes they go, no, no, we can only have this, this, you know, dry material. And it's like, we need to make a mess. You know, kids need to get their hands dirty. And I think if there's some revolution happening, it's not a revolution, it's just a counterculture. It's a reaction to... I do. Not, I love the iPad, and I love my kids playing on the iPad. But I love them playing with paint and drawing materials so much more. And it's quite hard to quantify why that is, and why you just kind of instinctively know that it's better for them because it's absolutely their world and no one else's world on that piece of paper. They're not just dressing up some little character and putting him into some room and changing his hat or having a little fight with them. The character they make on the paper is their character, and they can do whatever they want with them. One of the exercises that I felt was most profound was a drawing of a woman that you included, I believe, at the end of Let's Make Some Great Fingerprint Art. The exercise was to draw what makes her happy. (laughs) How did you come up with the ideas for these? (laughs) I don't know. I don't know, but that was quite humorous, that one. I, I like the idea of leaving things out and the idea that that was quite funny because she, what would make one person happy to another person happy is obviously 
back very dramatically. <laughs> right, but then you're also it's also the interpretation of what you're projecting on that person of your own notion of what mm-hmm. happiness is, which you know again is, well, is highly philosophical. But, but I I loved it. I mean, I think again, children you know respond to those with much less inhibition. There's there's one double page spread in the book called Draw Something on the Plinth, and um, it's draw something modern on one plinth and draw something old on another plinth and. Only kids would come up with, you know, they'd, on the old plinth they'll draw their grandmother, <laughs> <laughs> or you know, someone. They just can't, you know. That's how I would never have thought of. I'd never really thought that that's what they would draw on there. But quite a few of them put their granny on there. As oh the my old god, plinth. that's so fabulous! Did you test run the exercises with your own children? Yeah, they they did actually test run a, quite a few. Did they veto anything? Um, I don't think they veto, but I think they're quite hard to please, and because they're boys, I, I think I. The book is very is not very sweet in a way because I had to make it, you know, when you're competing with a computer game, it has to have a, an element of cool. And so I think that's why there's some little elements in the book there that have a little macabre side to them. Like you were saying how to draw a bird, there's how to draw a dead bird in there too. There is a dead that's bird definitely in there. for those boys. <laughs> <laughs> with X's for eyes. <laughs> to, keep, to keep them interested otherwise. Like, eh, very old bird, you know. So we happen to have your boys here with us. Let's ask them. <laughs> okay, Hamish, Alexander, do you want to come in? Do you want to come into the studio? Oh, so cute. Hi. Hi. So both your mom and dad are designers. Do you both want to be designers too? Yeah. Probably. Sort of. I do like designing cars and original buildings and things. It's quite fun. You can you can make it whatever you want it to look like. Yeah, so. you can make, like, background. You can do whatever you want it like what my mom said, it's your character. You can do whatever you want with it. It is rubbish. You don't have to cross it out. You can just turn it into something. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. So did you help your mom come up with some of the exercises for the books? Oh, yes. Yes. Which, are the, which was your favorite part? I actually gave my mom an idea, and it's like a, like a man on a balloon. <gasps> That's a beautiful and one. And he's floating. That is one of the most beautiful pieces of the book. And it's, it's not really true, actually. Why? It's just my imagination. That's and you have to lose whatever your imagination. It doesn't have to be true. It can just be in your imagination or in your head where there is imagination. Thank you, Alexander. Hamish? I'm not sure my favourite thing in, in Let's Make Some Great Art because I really like the Leonardo da Vinci because you can put whatever you want on the faces of the Mona Lisa. You can make it whatever you want. And when I was doing mine, when you just draw the from the face and the eyes, I came one of called the man Elisa, so I just turned into a man. How fabulous. By putting a moustache and everything. <laughs> you think that's funny, Alexander? Yeah. In Let's Make Some Great Fingerprint Art, um, you have to um, you have to do the fingerprint skull things. Oh, yeah. I really like them because... You're using imagination. You've already got an idea, so you've just gone, oh, I don't know what to think of what I should draw on my fingerprint. You've already got an idea of what to do, but you can just do anything you like on it. So they've told you what you can do it on, but you can do anything on it. That's wonderful. Did you have a preference doing the skull on white paper or black paper? I really like how you can do both. 
Yeah, it's pretty like yes. interesting. So black is, skull. One thing I was going to say is the she was trying to make the book for not just only kids, also for adults, also for adults and kids and mothers and grandmas. It's for everyone. It yeah. is and for I everyone. got really quite amazed when it started selling about two hundred million times. It's worth it. That's how good it is. Yeah. Well, what I think is wonderful about you being on the air is that your entire family will now have been on Design Matters. Thank you, Hamish. Thank you, Alexander. Thank you, Marion. It's really been an absolute pleasure to have you here in the studio today. Thank you. Sweaty. Uh, if you'd like to know more about Marion Duchars, head on over to her new website, letsmakesomegreatart.com. While you're there, you can make a frog from a fingerprint or whatever else you please. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.